for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is March 1st, 2022, and today is part two with Troy Pottinger. All right, welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blisey, and today is episode 203. And like I said, it is with Troy Pottinger. If you guys have not listened to Troy Pottinger's part one, which would be episode 201, I recommend you go listen to that first and then come back and listen to this one. These are mind-blowing podcasts. The first one is literally my ears were smoking because it just there was just so much going on. This one here is about the same way. I mean, they're just just elite level uh, information, basically. Um, that's the best way I can put it. We talk about scrapes in this one, but we also talk about some other things as well. So you're going to get a little mix and match of uh, different content and different info in this one. So that's where I'm going to leave it. It is the the first podcast of March 2022. I want to say thank you to everybody out there for all the support and all the downloads. I try to tell everybody out there thank you every week, and um, I, I really truly mean it. Like this, it's it's huge. You know, I get a lot of people reaching out to me, whether it's on social or you know DMs or Facebook or something like that. And I try to get back to everybody, and um, I really appreciate everything. I really do. Uh, I also want to do an update on merch. So. I did have a few orders come through not too long ago and had ordered those and it's been a little bit, but I did get word last week that the orders are being printed this week. That's what I've been told. Um, I really hope they are. I leave for Argentina in 
four days. I leave on the 5th of March and I'll be gone for two weeks. So my plan is hopefully I can get this merch um, either today or tomorrow and get these things shipped out to you guys before I leave for that. If not, I apologize, but I'm going to do it when I get back. So um, yeah, that that's the update on the merch. So I, I want to get into this episode with Troy. Like I said, part two, it's a great episode. So I'm just going to let it let it run and hopefully you guys enjoy this. Oh, and don't forget, go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and leave a written review. That is always greatly appreciated. So here is this interview with Troy. All right, welcome back to the Fall Podcast. And today we are doing part two with Troy Pottinger. Troy, thanks for coming on, man. You bet, Aaron. Good to, good to be back quick. Yeah, for sure. I know we're doing this early in the morning for you. Uh, and you're in, a, you're in a blizzard, a whiteout, you said right now. So how are you, how are you staying warm this morning? Uh, I have a, I'm, I'm a little bit old school. I got a, obviously I have electric heat and all that, but I like my wood stove in my basement. So it's, it's cranked up and we're enjoying a North Idaho blizzard this morning. There you go. How is that going to put a damper on your, uh, scouting and your, your shed trip that you wanted to do today? (laughs) Exactly. I got a day off of work and I was, I've been looking forward. Well, been hammering on the weekends, but I've been looking forward to a three-day weekend like this, and I got both my shed dogs laying right next to me here, and they're not real happy. <laughs> of course, of course, I'm a little bummed too, but hey, is what it is. Like my wife said this morning, it, it's meant to be for some reason, so we're going to have to I see how much snow pat, or stacks up here, and we got really cold temps coming. I think you guys do too. I've been looking at the weather across the nation. And yeah. There's a there's a heck of a cold spell rolling in right now. Yeah, and a lot of ours is high winds. It's been like yesterday, it was like 50 mile an hour winds, and we're recording this on the 21st, so it's gonna in podcast land. It's gonna go live a little later than this, but um, yesterday it was like 50 mile an hour winds. Like my neighbor's playset like flipped over three times in the field, and it's just like you know just coming up crazy, and it's single digits. I mean, this morning I woke up, it was 28 degrees and that's cold, but it's not that cold to me. Um, when when you get down singles, five, six and low, like that's cold, like vehicle starts, stop. They won't start in the morning sometimes when it's that cold. So that's kind of where we're at. We're about mid twenties this morning, but everything's dropping from here. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at, I think they said three degrees tomorrow, low, and then five the next day. And highs in the teens and low 20s so yep. yeah i get what you're saying it was if we wouldn't have got this snow snow uh coming in like we are you know i was ready like i've been really getting after the shed hunting and the scouting as much as i can i live in the mountains so for your listeners when as soon as i climb up an elevation i get into really deep snow so what sure. i've been doing is i've been playing the game of as the snow recedes a little bit you know, as it recedes on its way up in elevation, I'm able to get into a little newer, better hunting-based country that mm-hmm. uh, was great hunting elevation during the hunting season. Well, now, like this, two days ago, I was in a spot that I really trying to find a certain buck's antlers, and as soon as I got up into where he normally beds, I was in 18 inches legit snow, and I had to back out and leave. Wow. That's a lot of snow. Yeah. And that's only at 4,000 feet. A lot of my best hunting spots are five, 5,000 feet. So I'm sure there's another foot and a half, two feet of snow at those elevations. 
Yep, I got you. What what's your scouting been like this year in your shed hunting? Are you achieving what you want to achieve as far as getting in some areas that you want to look at and finding some sheds? Yeah, and it's all based on what February weather has done for me. Um, thank, I mean, it's been kind of a really nice February overall out here, even though we're seeing the snow today. I've had a lot of clear, really cold days, not a lot of snow accumulation. So I would say I've got, I've been able to shed hunt some of my, what I c- consider my lower ground areas, my, my mm-hmm. lower elevation areas. And, you know, I picked up, I don't know if we talked about this on the last podcast together, but I did pick up one of my stud three and a half year old bucks that I have really high hopes for uh, while I was trying to find a different buck. Uh, And I've been able to do a bunch of backtracking in the snow. That's not too deep, just checking on bedding areas and uh, locating where I've got my bucks pretty dialed kind of where they live back in, November, December, kind of where they live to stay out of harm's way, but also service all the local doe groups in say a three or four mile area. Sure. I gotcha. Well, that's good. I mean, you've been sending me pictures. You've been finding some, some dandy sheds and I'm, I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, we just, you know, around here, I've got a buddy, a real good buddy that he's been on the podcast before, but he'll find 40 sheds a year in Michigan, 30 to 40. And, you know, he does it a little differently than everybody else does. Like he likes to get shed hunting permission. Like he doesn't even care if he hunts the property, not he just loves shed hunting so much that when he sees a group of deer yarding up in the winter, he'll go ask him, Hey, Hey, can I go walk your field? You know, I want to find some shed antlers. And they're like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know? Yep. But like here, and I think I've, I've said it before, but where my my farm country is i mean the deer i haven't seen a deer in well since in mid-december you know just when the crops leave and it starts getting real cold and the reason being in in my area food i mean obviously food is king especially in late season like a lot of people say food's king but what i see around here is cover is king like they want cover more than food, but they're going to try to find the best cover where I guess what I'm trying to say is they're going to find they they'll go for lesser food for better cover. Does that make sense? That's what it seems yeah. like around here. Yeah. And I think there's some validity to that out here too. I, I find that my older, more mature bucks that are trying to survive day to day in the winter with predators, their number one key ingredient to survival in the winter is to have that security cover and wind advantage they have to have that wind advantage even after hunting season Mm -hmm. because they're getting hunted by predators and they got to deal with the snow so what i find and it, it it it's always proved to me over and over by where i find their sheds um they'll stay higher they'll stay in a good wind advantage thermal slash prevailing wind uh tunnel for them that really keeps them safe from predators they like that cover to yeah to get out of the heavy heavy snow and as long as they have reasonable food sources i find that my bucks especially my older bucks will always be located in those areas over a say an easier maybe a little better food source that a lot of my does and younger deer will move to 
and risk, in my opinion, more predation because there's more deer numbers there yes. and more elk numbers. So what happens is the predators key in on the bigger numbered area of, of deer and elk here. And then a lot of my old hermit type bucks, I'm talking four, five, six, seven year old bucks. Those are the ones that are kind of living by themselves mm -hmm. this time of year in that really good cover. Yes. Yep. And that's, you know, on TV, you see the standing bean field that a guy might leave out in the Midwest or something like that. And deer just hammer it, hammer it all winter. And I'm not saying there's no validity to that. There is, but here where I'm at in Michigan, it seems like they prefer the best cover and maybe the not so great food, even though they're getting what their body's selling them they need. But they might, like, I've got a perfect example. I got a 20 acre cut cornfield right across the road from my house. Okay. And there's corn still on the ground. Like, you walk through that cornfield, there's corn on the ground. But there is no cover around it. And you will not see a deer in it all winter. Not one. <laughs> and they're not even traveling to it, huh? Nope. Nope. <laughs> because the cover around me. There's no, there's no um, thermal cover. The cover around me is hardwoods. There's no cedars. There's no um, pine there's trees. There's no canopy. Nope. Yeah, there's no, there's canopy. no canopy anywhere around right. me. Nothing. Right. So they that's, seek that that's out. Inter that's interesting. I when I do go to the Midwest and hunt late season, um, I, I, and this is my thought on it. I, the predation is different there. Mm -hmm. And like, even when I've been in Saskatchewan and went up shed hunting and places like that, where it's bitter cold, it's, it's interesting to me versus the, the cover that I have here in the mountains. And I'm, I'm a coniferous forest that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. You can look at it on Google. Um, so when I go to those places like that have the crops that have the hardwoods, I've noticed that in those places where the predation isn't like it is here, they're finding all their shed antlers and everything literally right in their yards almost. Really? So, yeah, and, and and I've never been to Michigan, obviously, and I don't know what you're dealing with. You're in Michigan, right? Yes, yep. Yeah, I've never been there. I mean, I've obviously talked to a lot of guys from Michigan. So just speaking of all of this, I think a lot of it has to do with what, the number one priority is for the deer in that area based on their, their personal, I mean, their set equation of what they're dealing with, mm -hmm. you know? So for me, it's right now, it's a lot of, lot of miles to locate one single bucks area that he hit out in when he shed his antlers in January. Trail cams are a big part of what we do as hunters and guys, I want you to go check out Exodus Trail Cams right now. Drop everything that you're doing. Go check them out. Exodus Trail Cams are badass. They flat out work. They have the Exodus Advantage five-year no BS warranty and a five-year theft and damage coverage. People that sign up for the newsletter right now can save big right now. So if you go to their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, you can sign up for their newsletter and you can save on your next camera. I personally love the Exodus Render. It's the cell cam. It's the LTE 4G. Love them. I'm actually going to be running solar panels this year with mine. I cannot wait to get those things out. And also, 
Exodus has a YouTube channel that they put so much content up every week, actually almost daily, I feel like, and I love watching all of it. Go check out their YouTube channel, and also they have three podcasts under their balloon, the Trail Cam Radio Podcast, the Land Podcast, and then the Deer Gear Podcast. They're all educational-driven information, and uh, they are very entertaining as well, so go check that out. Are you finding a lot of, like, when you find a buck sheds, are you majority of the time, is that buck sticking around that area even in the fall? Or is it like pretty split down the middle as far as like that's his, you know, winter range and he's, it's not really his summer or fall range. Like, do you see a lot where he drops his sheds? Like that's where he's, his like core is. I have two scenarios out here that I deal with. I hunt true back country mountain country whitetails that have zero agriculture um, interwoven into their into their life's equation. And then I hunt mountain country that in the valley bottoms is ag. Yep. So I see two completely different, to answer that question honestly about this country, I see two completely different scenarios play out. Where I have agriculture anywhere within a mile or two, and even if that's down in two or three, 2,000 feet elevation or whatever, those deer tend to be more homebodies. Okay. Obviously, to me, it's a destination food source that is hard to beat. Right. Plus, they've got it, they've got it made because they have the mountain na- native food source that's excellent. Lots of logging practices that go into play in these areas, plus ag in the bottoms. Um so they tend to be more homebodies. And I find that those bucks are bucks that I can generally rely on staying throughout an entire year in, in a general area, say a two, three, four-mile area. As soon as I switch to the backcountry, big country mountains, you know, that run up to eight, 9,000 feet, whatever, real close to those elevations, as soon as I get into the true mountain, like 100% mountain bucks, they migrate. Okay. And they migrate with the snow. So what happens to me there, that's where I really have to pay close attention to the timing of when the conditions and the snow levels come into play with the timing of their drop of antlers. And, and that's when I find deer that may range eight to 10 miles throughout a year, every year. And they kind of rotate. They have their they have their fall range, and then they get out of there based on the snow levels for their winter range, which really pushes them and migrates them. And then they have their spring range that they move back into, and then they live it out and, and basically deal with the hunting pressure and everything all through the late summer and fall. Now, it's interesting that late summer on those backwoods mountain bucks a lot of times my backwoods mountain bucks in the summer will range in one area or a drainage. And then as soon as the hunting pressure hits and that pressure usually is a couple weeks before season, because everybody's doing their last ditch effort to get out, set a trail camera and hang his tree stand or whatever, you know, scouting, whatever, all of a sudden the pressure hits the mountains heavy. That's when I see those true mountain bucks sometimes move transitioning into September. I'll see them move four or five miles. No kidding. And then they'll kind of settle into an area. But as soon as the rut comes in in mid November, late November, 
sometimes even early November when they're checking community scrapes, I'll see those big bucks. And this is all based on trail camera evidence and years and years of mapping these bucks out. It's, it's incredible to see them move from two or three different drainages just to check those community scrapes to keep tabs on certain does and they'll make it all the way back to where they really like to hide out and mm-hmm. they'll do that. Man, they put some miles on in November and December. Yeah. They, they put on some serious miles and I see them lose weight big time from September to December. I watch those bucks get all muscled up and ripped and lean down and they're just shredded by late November, early December. They're just shredded with muscle because they're running mountains but they have no fat on them. Mm-hmm. You know, for you to say that your bucks are going four to five to even eight miles, that's so crazy to me. Like, I, I understand the pressure. You know, pressure comes in, they're going to move like anything else. But like, what is what is making them go four to five miles? Like, is it that much pressure? Or is it just like they're going like four or five miles might be when they hit that threshold of like, you know, I feel like I'm safe now is like, do you see a threshold like that? It's the, the, the range that they travel during November and December is because they're trying to service and get to multiple doe family groups. And our deer density is so low per square acre. Yeah. And, the, and I'm, and now, now I'm strictly talking to backcountry mountain bucks here. Yep. Not the mountain slash ag bucks. Yep. The, totally hill, the hill country, like big, big I'm, hills. I'm talking big, big country mountain bucks where you take your snowmobile in and there's 12 feet of snow to and five feet of powder to ride in after they migrate. So mm-hmm. anyway, they have to move drainage to drainage to just check on a few doe family groups. And if they don't, they're not running into a lot of females to chase in the rut. So they have evolved out here in this mountain country, in my opinion, based on what I've seen for decades, they really are travelers once the breeding gets close. Yep. And people that that studied the biology of a scrape and how it works and how a community scrape really works, they're checking those scrapes to get all the intel. They get to a scrape, they get every bit of intel they need for the past week or two of who's there, who's alive, who's close, who's around. Then they move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do in this, in the big woods country where they're trying to keep tabs. It's kind of like, you know, difference of living in a city versus living way out in the country. Sure. Yeah. And if you want to be involved socially, then you've got to get out and travel and cover ground to see, to see the other, you know, the other animals in the herd. And that's what they do. So, okay, scenario here. Let's say you start picking up a buck in, you know, the breeding phases, you know, on a, we're talking hill country, the big ones, not hill ag. So let's say you pick up a buck on, on a scrape on camera. How often are you seeing that buck again? Like, is it pretty frequent or is it like, shit, I might not see him again this fall. Like that's got to like play with your psyche a little bit and how you're going to hunt him, doesn't it? Yeah, when you're hunting a true mountain buck, a no ag agriculture buck, I I date all my doe family groups when they come when their photo period hits and when they 
come into estrus the old mature does that live at my scrapes mm-hmm. and she'll come in within a couple of days of the same day every year once she's settled into an area those doe family groups stay once they migrate back they stay in their spots okay meaning within a mile or two they i mean they stay within a mile a lot of times so these big mature bucks when one shows up what they do is these guys are like traveling sales i mean i gotta use the right analogy here these guys camp out these big deer they know when a specific doe is going to come into estrus based on past experience with her Mm -hmm. they will show up on that community scrape in the same window almost every year if the doe's still alive and he's still alive they will roll in check those scrapes and what they do is they camp out they make home in the area, say in the drainage or in part of that drainage for three or four or five days, servicing the does that are available and getting close to ready in that area. And then once that runs out and those does are covered, those big breeder bucks and they move and then they go do it again and they do it again. And what I have learned from my does over the years is I'll always have a doe or two, and it just, you know, it's nature's way of making this work in big country. Come in early, early November, sometimes even late, late October, rarely, but sometimes. I'll have a doe or two start to trickle in to estrus early November, and then it picks up as far as the frequency of does coming into estrus middle of November, and then it really heightens, I would say, in my area Thanksgiving's really excellent as far as does actually being bred. Okay. Which means I'm pulling big deer to those does. So I have a higher number of does being bred around, let's just say around that Thanksgiving time. And then it starts to taper off, but it trickles out until I'll see does in estrus on my cameras being addressed by a mature big buck with and he'll be with her for two or three days all the way up to like, say, even December 8th, 9th, and 10th, and then it really slows down. Mm -hmm. So Big Buck shows up on a doe family group. I better know when she's normally coming in, and I better be ready for him and anticipate and be there to hunt him. Um, I do it a lot. I literally go hunt a specific buck at a certain doe family group quite frequently. That's what I did this year because – I have intel on that buck when he likes to be there, if that makes sense. Yeah, historical data. I mean, basically, you've got historical data. And that was going to be my next question of, like, when do you pick and choose to go into these stands? Because, you know, a lot of guys, and you might do it yourself, is kind of monitor cameras as much as you can to get you, you know, that most recent information to jump, no one jump in there. Or is it like, okay, I've had so much historical data over the last – X years that I know on November 5th through the 10th, I've got to be in stand number two. Like, how do you, how do you decipher that through your head? Well, I have everything mapped out and, and, and I have all the data logged on. As soon as a buck hits three and a half, he starts to really settle in, in the mountains to where he wants to live. Doe family groups that he wants to address. I'm not shooting three and a half. I'm not shooting four and a halfs unless they're just out of this world, world-class deer. Mm-hmm. And I'm not shooting these deer. I'm literally getting to condition and watch them on my scrapes 
this is a year after year process that I, I hunt deer. I feel like I hunt deer a lot different than most people because I condition when they're young. When they're two and a half, they move into an area. When they're three and a half, they really start to settle in. When they're four and a half, they've given me three years of data when they like to show up in certain spots, where they like to be, what does they're interested in. And those does, if they stay alive, and a lot of my does live to be old, um, you know, some of them get killed by predators and all that. They give me all of this year after year data, and then I like to move in when they're five and target them. And it's because I've conditioned and kept all kinds of data on when they want to show and when they want to be there. So it's a it's a big process and a yeah. big endeavor and a huge uh, commitment. Yeah. And keep track of all this. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if that's really answering what you're asking. No, it me, is. It is. It's not a, I don't just fly by night, see the pants, go out and sit somewhere just for sure. fun. If you try doing that in the big mountains, you won't see squat. I mean, you won't even be near a deer. Mm-hmm. I, we don't have deer running all over. They have, they, they hang out in certain areas that are conducive to their survival. And we're talking every biological factor that you can think of. But I've done all my homework, and the whole conditioning with scrapes is what's huge. Yeah, and that— You, you condition year-round. For sure, and that single-handedly is why, to me, from an outsider's perspective, you can tell me to kick rocks, but when I look at your, your um, I don't know even what you call it, your portfolio, your history, whatever, you doing scrapes is, is why you've become successful the way you have, because— I, Like I, I kind of equate it to like the UP of Michigan. It's very vast. It's not as vast as where you're at, but it's very, it's It's big. big. Yeah. And I mean, I was just up there snowmobiling a couple weeks ago. We put 60 miles on in areas we got off the beaten trail in areas that I'm like, I'm driving by some of these, you know, these thermal cover little spots. And I'm like, there's, there's never been a human in here. Like, how do you try to find deer up there and it's something I want to get into, but my dad, he hunted up in the UP a lot. Like when he was, you know, kind of in his, like after high school and stuff like that. And his big thing was, if you can find a migration, you'll see deer. You got to get into a migration. So if, if I was to go up this year to the UP for the first time and try to find some deer, I'd be using the Troy Pottinger method. I'd be going up there with some scra- or like making these scrapes, putting cameras on them and like monitoring these and figuring them out that way. Like to me that's the most logical way to do it when I don't live right now. Like it'd be a scenario like you. I'm I'm driving where I need to go. I'm driving over 4 hours to get there. Right. You know. So and there's big deer up there. I mean there is. It's freaking huge. It's vast, right. you know. Um, you, you you have to have something working in your favor. There's only one thing that'll work in your favor, in my opinion, 24-7. When the deer are in the general area, when you can't get there, and when you can't always be there, uh, a scrape-based setup, a big community scrape, is working for you. Literally, if the deer live there, Year-round, it's working for you year-round. If your deer migrate and come back to it and they're there during hunting season, it's working for you the entire time they are in that area. 
it never stops working for you. And that's why I, that's why I live by trapping whitetails and using scrapes is because I'm putting out a scent based attractant that's important to their survival that they truly need to have so that they can communicate and keep tabs on each other. All I'm doing is jumping into that equation with them and I'm becoming another buck or three or four bucks and three or four does. And I'm adding more to their sensory, so to speak, when they come in and they want to know who the new dudes are in town or who the few are. They know, they know 90% of them, but then what happens is I jump into the equation and all of a sudden there's this big breeder buck that's trying to find that scent of mine also. And he's wanting to know why he doesn't see that deer, but he smells that deer. Mm-hmm. And he sees signs of those deer. So I get more frequency when I put these, when I build these scrapes, or when I overmark existing scrapes and add more deer to the equation, I I get more frequency in the daylight by the best bucks. Why? Because it doesn't spook them. It's not a food source where they felt danger in the past. It is a natural communication center. I mean, people get on their damn phones all the time and get on social media for a reason. It's Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. You know. What it truly is is their communication hub Mm -hmm. year-round. And if it's a migrating deer, like I think you're talking about in the UP, they have to get back to that area of where they're going to live in the summer and fall during hunt season, and they got to make that area work for them and keep them alive. So when they move back into that, and do they move back? Do your deer have to move because of snow? Do they? Is that what you're asking? I'm asking you if your deer actually have to migrate too. Oh, yeah, definitely. My, that, so you're in the same scenario as me then. Yeah. You, you actually will find that my I find that migrating deer really, really stay close and tight to those community scrapes once they get back because they have to get data and information for themselves. Say, is it worth living here? This year, is there enough does around? Everything that I need, is it around to where, you know, I can breed and, and and do what I'm wired to do? Guys, I got great news. Helix Broadheads, their website is now live. Go to helixbroadheads.com to check them out. You can order from there now. You can order your broadheads. I personally love the 125. It's a fixed blade, single bevel. Um, I love it. Uh, you need to buy a sharpener with them as well. Because it's imperative that you know you run an, a broadhead through an animal and then you got to sharpen it. It's just it, you know you can resharpen these things. So they do make a sharpener for it. I would recommend purchasing a sharpener as well. Um, go check them out on all their social media channels. They're on Instagram. Go give them a foul, 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 a follow. There you go, a follow. Give them a follow and uh, DM them. Say, hey, I heard about you on the fall podcast and uh, order some broadheads. So go to that website, helixbroadheads.com. Check them out. I just got chills. And you want to know why? Because you just made something very clear to me here in farm country where I'm at. So I've been hunting this property since 2016. And it's the farm country stuff that I hunt. And how I just told you that the deer leave in the winter, okay? Since 2016, since I've been hunting it and monitoring it like crazy, I don't see deer in the winter. You don't. I just don't. Not in my mile section. And even a mile section plus or my, or, you know, plus around me, if that makes sense. I just don't because 
there's just no thermal cover. I've, I've established that. But now, I know in my head, since 2016, every year when it starts green up, turkey season starts coming around, deer start moving back in. Because it's getting a little warmer. There's a little green. You know, there's buds. They can start eating. But I have yep. a scrape. Okay? I have a scrape that when I have a deer, a buck, that has been here last year and he shows up this next year, hits it every year. Yep. Okay. It's like now you just made me think like, wow, that just clicked. You know what I mean? And I never really thought of, I just thought of like, okay, it's a scrape and it's in a good spot. The buck gets there. But now you saying that migrating, come back in, like they hit it every year, like year after year, one buck, buck might hit it again. And then they hit it throughout the fall. Yep. You know, that's their hub. And he comes in and he, if you put a, if you put a camera on the scrape like that early, You'll catch him while he's growing his antlers, hitting that laking branch all through the spring and summer. Yep. That's happening. And he, yeah, and he may move off to a food source on you because you sounds like you have some ag. Yes. Yep. Yep. So, so when you do, and it's, I'm glad we get to talk about this because I deal with ag bucks too that have mountains above them. What my ag bucks do is where, where the great food source is for that month, they may move on you a little bit. So that's why I target that great security cover that my ag bucks and my mountain bucks, both, go hide out in to stay alive during hunting season. But I have all that mapped out because of the layout that I do and the scrapes that I build in certain spots on purpose or over mark ones that I find. It just makes sense for me to be a step ahead of them mm-hmm. and to be in the game with them when they're ready to move into those security type places during the season. Um, my son Tyson killed a buck a few years back that was, that, that was moving four and a half, five miles through the air, which is a long distance. When you think about mountain country, he was moving every November to a big community scrape that we had actually found and overmarked. We still have a great, it's still a great hunting spot, but he was moving in November every year to that scrape at three and a half and four or two and a half, three and a half and at four and a half. He was doing the same thing. And we literally just went in on that week and we knew we had to be there. And we literally killed that deer. The first sit within the first four hours and then we pulled the card and the camera data, and he'd been there two days. But we knew that he was going to show up that time frame. So, you know, just playing that right and basically finding a needle in the haystack based on scouting and intel, it's the only reason we killed that deer. Mm-hmm. And the scrape is the powerful attractant that br- brought him four or five miles every year to certain doe family groups that he was interested in. Yeah. You know, I, I want to get into some more scrapes here. So, uh, that was a great like little precursor to kind of getting in to more scrape questions because the number one for me, and to kind of give people context now a little bit, we're going to go through some more. This is part two. We did a part one. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you go do that. Um, but I have some more scrape questions for you. And then at the end of this, I've got about eight or 10 questions coming from social media that guys wanted me to ask. So we're going to get into that at the end. But selfishly, I'm going to start with my questions. Now, 
hypothetically, or you know, if you're coming into a season, when when are you starting a, a new scrape? Like, do you have an ideal time frame as far as month or whatever when you're starting a sh- new scrape? Like, when are you starting to establish that? Uh, right now. We're in February right now, so like, doesn't matter to does you. Not, does not matter. Does not matter. So there's two ways I hunt scrapes. I, I establish or overmark existing incredible community scrapes, or I build one where I want to build one or find one any time of the year because community scrapes work year-round. The Licking Branch works year-round. And then I also take scrapes right at big buck bedding areas. So I establish scrapes to just monitor and condition deer for years as they grow up on them. I also build scrapes and put them right in the face and the nose of a big deer that I'm trying to kill to get real aggressive with him. So that's two totally different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So right now, what I'm doing this time of the year is covering a ton of ground, hiking my tail off. Yeah, we're picking up sheds, but I'm scouting. And if say I get into a spot and it just the light bulb comes on and I go, I need to be here. I will build one right now. I will make it seem to the deer in the area like that thing's been there forever. I'll put multiple deer profiles in it. And then I just let the deer take it over right now. And it'll condition them. And then I will start gathering the intel off of that. And sometimes I gather intel off of scrapes for two or three years before I even hunt it because I let bucks grow up on it. And I don't have a target buck there that's five years old, but I'll eventually get a five-year-old there. So sometimes it's a two, three, four-year process. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, let's say we're in season. Things aren't working right. I got a big buck that's got me figured out, and I got to move on him and get closer to his bed or move to where he's moved to. In the early season, he's just kind of hanging out, eating and taking care of himself and staying alive before the rut. I'll, I'll put a scrape where if I know where he's bedding or if I can find out where he's bedding or if I have a great idea where I think he's hiding out, I'll put it right in his face, use the wind, and put it at him and try to pull him early season. As soon as the rut hits, a lot of times I'm right back on those community scrapes that I've built any time of the year, doesn't matter what month, because I have deer that have taken those over. Those scrapes are working for me 365 days a year. And if it's a migrating deer, they're working seven, eight months out of the year when the deer are there. Right. So for me, people ask me all the time, when's the best time to build it, Troy? If you're if you understand and take the trapping approach to whitetails and a communal type scrape to a whitetail, it does not matter when you build one. It's never too late. It's never too early in a great location. Okay. Now, when you talk about putting different buck profile or different deer profiles in it, like let's take for existence, right? You know, like right now, if I go tomorrow and I start scouting some ground and I find a spot that I want to put a community scrape or just a scrape to to monitor. When you're doing that, like in February, what type what types of profiles are you putting in? Like, is it like, are you putting a rutting buck scent in there? Or like, what kind of scent? I know you have your own your own uh, majestic uh, <laughs> um, scrape. I don't know what you call it. Your own mixture. Like, yeah. but but 
for the listeners out there that might not have that mixture, like what do you recommend putting in right now? I I just like well, first of all, I only use synthetic or I use buck fever synthetics and it's excellent. And they have different profiles of deer urine. So what I don't want is just one exact urine smell. I don't want that. I want multiple different yep. uh, urines. Same with the forehead gland. Um, as far as my mixture goes, I have tinkered with so many different mixes and scents that I've kind of come up with, and it's synthetic only, unless I'm transferring actual scrape dirt that I've frozen, ziplocked, all that. I mean, that's a lot more work. Um, that's how you can add multiple deer profiles too. But I'm just looking for different urines, different foreheads that I can mix all in a bottle, put it into a scrape so that when a deer walks up to it and they check it for the first time, they don't just smell one urine profile. They smell different ones. And mm-hmm. it makes it, and I've watched it. It really makes them curious, just like they do when you put a camera and a video on a natural community scrape. There's multiple deer there. Yep. So I'm just taking combos of what I mix together. My foundation, my is all buck fever synthetics, and I mix together there. Um, I have some other items that I personally have come up with over the years that go into that. And I'm basically, it's it's not a herd in a bottle, but it's multiple deer mm-hmm. on the licking branch. It's multiple, and that's forehead gland and some preorbital, and it's multiple deer urine profiles on the ground. Okay, so you're not so necessarily yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm I'm just saying you're so you're not necessarily putting rutting buck urine, quote unquote, like in a scrape in February. You're just putting, you know, just well, deer scent in it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll tell you what. I'll just say this. I'm not afraid to put any of the buck fever synthetics okay. in it. Okay. Yeah. That's, I'm that's... not afraid to put – it's a community scrape. Yep. It's got residual deer urine and deer forehead, preorbital forehead's the key, but it's got multiple deer on that licking branch. It's got multiple years of deer urine in that dirt, and – that scent is in the dirt that you and I would never be able to smell. Right. That a bobcat, a mountain lion, a bear, a whitetail, an elk, anything that walks through there, they'll scent check that even if the animals haven't urinated in it for three or four or five, six months. Mm-hmm. They'll still scent check that, and I see it all the time on my videos. And I put everything on video on my scrapes. That's how you really gather good info. Yeah. Um, so I'm not afraid to put – just about everything into a build or overmark a community any time of the year because there should be and there is residual scent from all of those different reasons why deer urinated there throughout a whole year. Mm -hmm. And I have not had deer spook from that. Will I use, and I want to be very clear, I will not use a protein-based scent that's natural. I won't use it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and use it. Do whatever works for you. I won't use anything that can rot or yeah. that's been bottled with feces in it. And, you know, you, you just – all you have to do is pop the cap on a lot of urine scents. And if they smell 
like an outhouse and rotten. That means the protein in that bottle has broken down and it stinks. That's not what deer urine that's fresh on the ground ever smells. It doesn't smell that way. Mm -hmm. Not even close. And I learned 20 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe, because I tested everything on the market on purpose. And man, when I was back in the old, I mean, we're talking back in the nineties, actually. So it's 30 years ago. I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> I watched deer on purpose. I'd put stuff out where I could even watch from my house where I was growing up or where just keep track of deer. I, I watched deer spook from rotten smelling over the counter bought urines. And that's why I went with all frozen and natural stuff back in the old days. And I dissect the urine out of a deer bladder. I would do all that and freeze it instantly. So it didn't rot. And then, thought and use it. And then I went to buck fever. As soon as I got buck fever, got with them and figured out how great it worked and didn't rot or stink. And then it's just been every since then, that's really all I've used and combinations of that product with a couple other things that work really good for me that, you know, there's some stuff and I, I do covet it and I do keep it to myself on purpose. Yeah, that's one question that a lot of people on social media are wanting to know what your mixture is. <laughs> everybody wants to know. Everybody wants me to, you know, everybody in the world wants everything just given to them for free. I'll tell you what, that's the one thing I do really covet is the mixture that I'm using right now is probably, I think I got it dialed as good as I could dial it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, I just don't ever spook deer with it. And I'm adding multiple deer to a community scrape, not a scrape. I got you. So you're adding that to a scrape that's already established that that deer, that deer are, you know, frequenting already. You're just refreshing it with more deer, Uh, more deer, or I'm building my own and creating a multiple deer scrape that shows up. Imagine this. If you're a deer, let's say you're a five or six year old buck. That's got everything figured out and you've beaten all the odds. All of a sudden, three to four or five different deer profiles show up in your home range. You're going to get a little pissy in your, <laughs> in your territory. Here's what I see with my oldest bucks. I'll say it over and over. As soon as they find it, the first video I get of them finding it, they will spend sometimes 15 to 20 minutes there. Just sent, literally watching them scent check it. And you can just see the wheel spinning in their eyes on the video of what in the hell? How'd I miss this? Yep. It's almost like a beagle looking for a rabbit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I that's... mean, my, my shed dogs stop all the time when they come across wolf or coyote urine. Mm-hmm. And they'll spend them 30 seconds to a minute there really checking out that spot and urinating over it and then moving on. But they'll always stop and overmark that. Yep. And when I walk back through, say five, six, seven, eight hours later, if I come, if I purposely walk through that same spot, my shed dogs will go right to that spot again and check it. No kidding. Yes. Wow. Yep. And they'll go right to that exact spot where they urinated and they'll check it again. Hmm. That's crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say crazy. I mean, that's just in the, that's in a dog's nature. You yeah, know, it's, that's it's in a mammal's. It's in a mammal's nature. Yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mammals are mammals. That's, you know, mammals behave like mammals for a reason. They, they, they live off a of scent and animals that have the noses that dogs and bears and elk and deer have, 
I mean, that's their, that's their driving force in life is what that nose tells them. Yeah. It's, that's their, I mean, what would you call it? That's their, that's their security. That's, that's their, if that, if that thing goes to hell in a handbasket, you're just a cat without claws, basically. If you can't climb yep. trees or kill anything, then what's the point of being a cat, in my opinion? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? so, so this whole the whole scrape, just the biology of a scrape is incredible if you're willing to be disciplined with it and learn it. Mm-hmm. Can you just go throw something out in the middle of the woods anywhere and get lucky? Sure, maybe once or twice in a lifetime. But if you really place those scrapes in a location that's conducive to daylight movement and security for a mature buck and he feels safe there and the does feel safe there, then you're in the game. Yep. You know, I got a big, first of all, I, let me get back to that question. I, I, I want to know how, how much are you refreshing these scrapes? So if you do one or let's say you start one in February as we are right now, like when you establish it, when are you going back to put more scent in it? Like how frequent and and what's that look like? Um, the buck fever synthetic lasts a long time, and it's it really carries deer. So if the deer come in, let's say February, I build it. The deer start to overmarket or check at least the licking branch right away within a day or two. My rule of thumb has been less intrusion, the better. That's worked for me. So no more than once a month, even this time of year. Okay. And if I can't get to it for two months, I don't worry about it a bit. As long as I have deer over marking it, I don't need to refresh it. Sure. But not to lead your listeners in the wrong way here. If I have a shooter buck show up on it, and this is what I've noticed when I say shooter, I'm talking five-year-old buck. If he's there and as it starts getting closer to the season, I've had really good luck with freshening it up at least once before I hunt it just because it gets his attention again, you know, and boom, he'll, he'll be on it within a day or two. Okay. So if you're like, if you're planning on, Hey, I'm hunting Saturday and this is Monday or Tuesday, you're going to slip in and freshen it up a couple days before you know, you're going to be there. That's what you're saying. I, no, I will if I think I can get away with it. Okay, okay. That's based on the deer I'm after and the way he's acting. Mm-hmm. But what I will do, and I think I've always said this in every podcast, it always gets freshened after the first hunt. And yeah. then I'm doubling back if I don't kill him and expecting to see him there in the daylight within three to four days minimum. We're talking yep. a mountain buck here. I'm not talking about a buck that lives on 80 acres. Right. So I have to put some time into these bucks way more so than if you're hunting congregated deer. For sure. Because they travel. And I might not be quite close enough yet. It, it, there's just so much that factors into the vastness of this country. If I think I can get in, freshen it, and be there to hunt him, like say on opening day, I will do it if I have the right wind to get in, in and out, freshen it, Boom. But once hunting season opens, then my rule is simple. You're freshen it after you leave Yep. a hunt. Why? Because I had to go there anyway to hunt and I want to be there to hunt because I got a deer I want to kill there. Then I'll freshen it after I leave. Yep. I also really pay close attention to the actual buck, the individual buck I'm hunting to see how he's behaving at the scrape. He's addressing it. 
like the buck that I hunted this year. And I think I talked to you about it on the last podcast, the one I shot over a miss. Yep. Yep. Every time I addressed that scrape and refreshed it on him, there was something in my mix that he really liked. And he had all kinds of deer on that scrape. And I have seven or eight bucks on that scrape counting the little guys. But when I would throw my mix at him, I mean, it's no joke. He was always there within 48 hours on that scrape. No kidding. As soon as I put, yeah. And, and it was, and it's, and, and let me share this with your listeners. So it makes sense. This is a buck that I knew where he was betting this, that time of the year. And I knew the doe family groups that he was addressing. So I knew he was close. I knew if I put the scent out, I know which way the winds blow. And I have that scrape positioned basically between me and his bed bedding area. And I'm off to the edge of it. And my, my stand set up to where my scent's not blowing into the direction he likes to come from. I'm about 30 yards off to the edge of that. And I have a thermal draft that literally sucks my scent right down the backside of this mountain. And I'm really, really dialed in on the scent and how that set up. But my scrapes out there that blow scent right to him. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you're talking about splitting hairs here with the wind and being careful about it and how I'm approaching coming all the long way around to get to the stand, never crossing him kind of where he likes to go. And we're talking about a 30 yard window here right. of not crossing him. But when I go to, uh, when I go to sit there to address that scrape and refresh it, I mean, I was literally standing on purpose 15 feet from it on purpose and using my spray bottle to address it from 15 <laughs> feet away. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to this stuff. If I know I'm in the game. Right. And that's, and the, and, and I wasn't screwing it up and that's all I wanted out of that this season was he kept coming back. Mm-hmm. I was not standing right in it. I wasn't touching it with my hands, man. When it got serious and I just knew I was going to get a shot at this deer by the way he was behaving and my cameras were telling me that and all of that was playing, you know, really working out. I was extra careful then because I didn't want to screw it up, but yeah, I'm refreshing that every time I hunt it, if it's rocking and if it's working, uh, I'm also pulling trespasser bucks through every now and then. Yep. New bucks so that you haven't cool. seen or just, you know, new guys or a buck from say two couple miles away that I know of that I maybe get on a camera quite a ways away. And all of a sudden he shows up at that thing. Yeah. Why? Because there's a lot of deer frequency at those community scrapes. Yeah. How much recruitment do you see when you see a buck, like a trespasser buck come through, find a scrape? How much recruitment do you see as far as them liking it? And they're just sticking around then. I'll get a trespasser buck. Like two years ago, I killed that great, that really big eight. You guys call them eights. I call them four by four. Yeah. He lived a long ways away. But as soon as he found my community scrape line, he was out on a rutting mission. Mm-hmm. He was out looking. He was out looking for a few more does because it was starting to get late in our breeding phase. As soon as he found it, he was doubling back every two to three days, and that's how I killed him. Yep. And he had never been on that camera until the rut. Hmm. But what did he find? He got there. He found this scrape. He realized that there was about a dozen deer there total using it. And he's like, oh, this is a hot spot. I got to come back. And that's exactly what I saw on my trail camera and video evidence of him. And 
he comes slipping in there in the evening right before, you know, half hour before dark, sliding through there thinking everything was safe and he was a trespasser to me. But I had had him on camera, I think, twice that week. So he was about every two or three day visitor. Only because it was that time of the year because he lived a long ways away. I know that because of another guy that gave me the intel on where he was living. And right. I, and I, and I knew, yeah, I knew that. So okay. it was really interesting to see that play out. I actually knew where that deer lived 90% of the time. That's crazy. That's why I like having a good relationship with my neighbors and like sharing, yeah. sharing, uh, Intel, because you can learn a lot from a deer that you're not getting information from. You know what I mean? Right. So right. that's a different story, but that's really, <laughs> that's really cool though. Do you find, have you ever seen harm in refreshing a scrape a lot? Well, because I don't refresh a lot because I think it's not so much. I'm not worried about my scent, my scent in my bottle bothering a deer. Okay. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about me as a human yes. yep. being there mm -hmm. because I don't care what anybody says. When we're there, we're putting off scent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is what it is. I don't want my predatory scent there often unless I'm there to kill. And if I got to be there, then you got to refresh. Why not? Right. Why wouldn't you? Yep. But, but to back up, do I worry about let's the, one of the biggest mistakes that I see new scrape hunters make go out, put a scrape out. All of a sudden you got bucks showing up. You couldn't believe. And it's like, Holy cow, more is better. That's not true. Let the deer take it over. Mm -hmm. Let them take care of it. I mean, you ask any really great trapper, they're not in there. They're not in there adding 10 times more scent because an animal, because they, you know, are trapping good. They want to let that scent and that trap work for them. They don't want to contaminate it. So I live by those same rules. I let the deer take it over. The deer doing all the work you need. The scent that I use sticks around for a long time. It's synthetically engineered to last a long time. It crystallizes in the rain. I mean, that buck fever synthetics works. It sticks around. So I stay away from that. I've seen Guys that I've talked to, I've done boot camps with, the biggest struggles I see with guys getting into the scrape hunting is they think more is better and they intrude way too much and they educate all the animals in the area and then their scrape turns into a nocturnal scrape. Yep. And that's what, you don't want that. If you have, all you have is nocturnal visitations, well, then you can get some intel on what's around, but you better move to where those deer in that area that you're wanting to hunt or kill will move in the daylight mm -hmm. where they feel safe. And that's what's great about mock scrapes is I will personally move a deer on purpose. I'll move him to where he's comfortable, and then I'll kill him there. And I've done it. Yep. No, that's that's a perfect, perfect answer for that because, you know, everybody's done it. I've done it. Everybody listen to this. That I've you've, done it. Yeah, exactly. We've all done it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess when you're in there, are you going as far as like using rubber boots every time you go in there and using rubber gloves? Like, how are you, you know, manicuring this scrape? And when you build it, like, are you like really being careful? Like how careful are you being? 
depending on the time of the year, how cold it is, how hot it is, how much I'm going to sweat. If I need to, it's knee-high rubber boots and latex gloves. Um, if I need to, based on the conditions. A lot of times what I'm doing, and I use latex gloves almost always when I first build one, um, or, or just a pair of gloves that I spray down with, with a product called Vanishing Hunter from Buck Fever Synthetics. Yep. So I always spray my hands. I always spray my boots. Everything I wash is, as far as my boots and gloves go, baking soda only, water, clean them good. All my stuff sits outside. My clothes don't come in the house. I have a porch it's covered. Uh, my Literally all my hunting clothes, and it probably drives my wife's nuts. She'll laugh. She's sitting there. <laughs> but my, my hunting camo is on the porch right now, year-round. I mean, it's, I got six, seven hangers. The stuff is so clean, it's unreal. Even my gloves are clean. But, yeah, I like to have something. I don't like bare hands on a licking branch at all. So mm-hmm. for your listeners, no bare hands for me. Okay. Um, if I have to go bare hands, stuff happens. You forget your latex gloves. I spray my hands down with Vanishing Hunter. That's what I do yep. if I have to go bare hands. And I've been, had really good luck with that. Here's another thing I do. I will literally reach down into the dirt. I'll, I'll literally reach into the dirt in the area, and I will take dry dirt, and I will literally scrub my hands with dirt. And then I'll spray down, and I'll let that dry off, and I'll just have a natural dirt hands, but they're not – it's dry dirt, so it's not sticky. But dirt's, dirt has a strong scent to it, oh, yeah. really strong. Yep. And then I'll spray down with a little Vanishing Hunter if I don't have the latex with me. I usually carry this time of year when I'm building stuff. All the way up until season, I always have four or five pairs of latex glove in a Ziploc bag in my pack. Mm-hmm. That's just what I do because I build scrapes. Um, when I dig the dirt, I always use just a natural big stick from the woods because that has no scent on it. I'm not packing tools miles into the mountains. I don't need those tools. So I'll just use a stick and latex gloves or gloves, spray down with Vanishing Hunter, and I build rarely, rarely will I build with bare hands unless I can spray it down and clean them really good. I got you. That makes sense because even when I'm building a scrape, I like the, I, cause I always use typically use a stick to like dig it out, but I'll yep. even, I, I've went even as far as like taking that stick with me and walking out with it and not putting it down and like oh, yeah. throwing it somewhere. I'll, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. That's I'm, I'm so I'm so uh, religious. I mean, like literally will walk away with that stick. It becomes my walking stick. Or at least I will turn and throw that sucker 50 yards out through the right. woods so it's not right there. Right. Yep. And I know that in the mountains it's going to rain or whatever in a day or two and boom, I'm fine. Especially this time of year. Yeah. Now, if it's, again, we got to stay, as soon as you get into the heat of the season, the heart of the season, and you're on a target buck, oh, you want to talk about heightened, heightened uh, intensity when it comes to doing everything meticulously. That's where I get. That's what I say. I was this season. I was spraying that scrape from 15 feet away. You know, with my big squirt bottles. There's a reason why I run those bigger squirt bottles. I, when I build a scrape initially, I'll spray the forehead gland 15, 20 feet high in a tree on purpose. Why? I want the wind to send that scent out above that scrape for miles. Mm-hmm. I'm not just going to keep it at a five foot ground level. You know, anytime you're in a tree stand, 
15, 20 feet up, do you get different wind currents than down at the ground? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when I initially build the community scrape build, oh, I put some scent out. I put it out there because I want every deer for miles that can pick up that thermal or prevailing wind or both. I want them to get to that scrape. Tree stands are a big part of what we do as bow hunters and even rifle hunters and crossbow hunters, everybody, all hunters. Novix tree stands. You guys need to check these out. Novixoutdoors.com. I've been talking about them a little bit as far as like my setup. And my setup is the Hilo. I'm going to run that Hilo. I've been putting stealth strips on them. And yes, I'm that guy geeking out right now and putting stealth strips on them and getting it all dialed in February because deer season's like eight months away. It's like right around the corner. <laughs> but uh, I love it. I, I'm trying to hone in my my setup right now. And uh, I've said it before. I'm going to run three mini sticks, the 17-inch mini sticks. They're a pound and a half. Um, I'm going to run cableators on them. And then uh, I'm going to run the Hilo. So my setup is right at 13 and a half pounds with three sticks, cableators, and the stand, the Hilo stand itself. These things are badass. I mean, it's it's ergonomically perfect for me, a guy like me, and a guy like you or a gal like you. I would go check them out. I did have a code shortly, but then they had to redo the code. So I'm waiting for the new code. I will get it out to you guys shortly to save a little bit of money there so go to novixoutdoors.com and check them out that's good info right there that's 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 top level high level stuff and that's i think that's what a lot of people doing scrapes uh you know they they come across i i think about it every time when i'm coming up to a scrape want to build something it's like man i really don't want to touch a thing but then i end up touching it and you know usually if there's a cedar nearby but you don't have that all the time i'll take the cedar bow and i'll like rub my hands with the cedar you know what i mean and then touch it or something like that i always try to do something but um this is this is next level stuff and that's why you're so successful doing it and that's those are the steps you need to take lions taught me how to hide scent what's a mountain lion do to hide any scent they bury everything bury it yeah so i'm a dirt guy dirt covers scent like you won't believe oh i am too everybody calls me crazy i love dirt cover scent yeah dirt is dirt's excellent so if you've got i don't know what your woods are like but my woods are as soon as you pull up the ground cover of whatever's growing on the ground we just have this super rich dark hot heavily scented dirt soil yep and i'll tell you what you can go into the mountains here and build a scrape without any scent in it at all. And deer will check that dirt. Deer will check that fresh dirt scent, walk right up to it. Yep. Ours is the same way. Yeah. They will come and check it. They're just drawn to it because scrapes always have that smell to a deer when they're digging it. There's a reason why they paw the dirt. Yeah, it's to deposit scent in there and make a bed for the scent, but that fresh dirt smell is an attractant to a deer when it comes to scrapes, too. So let's talk about that freshening part. Yes, when I freshen in the season, let's say on that big deer this year that I was after, oh, I was tearing that, I was tearing that dirt up with a, you know, I'd grab an eight-foot chunk of wood and reach out there and scrape that dirt, too. But I wouldn't stand in it during the season. I stood I stood back. Mm-hmm. You know, I was scuffing that dirt also. And then when it gets cold, if you can get that dirt to scuff really good when it's cold and get that scent out, that's a that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt at all if you can make it happen. Yeah. 
man, he got my gears turning. I got two scrapes right now. I want to walk out of my house and go, go refresh, <laughs> freshen up. <laughs> I know. Oh, you know, I got one scrape that's on a field edge and usually, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's corn, standing corn or beans or wheat. It doesn't matter. This community scrape, it's on a thorn apple tree. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. have a lot of thorn apples out there or not. We have thorn apple all over around here. It's on a thorn apple tree. This damn scrape is there every year, and it's on the inside corner of a yep. coming right into the timber off the yep. field. And yep. the craziest thing to me, and I don't know why it's so crazy, but I guess it's crazy. I get shooter bucks, three, four-year-old bucks that I'm chasing on this scrape in mid-October, mid-morning, 10 to noon is when yep. I get them. And I'm yep. like, what in the what in the hell are you doing right here right now? Like why are you why are you doing it right now? Um but early in the season in October like that, that's like a five hour sit in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like not a lot right. of guys are sitting that long in October, well, especially middle October. So it's like as, as soon as you explained that to me, guess what came into my head? As soon as you started talking about mid morning. That, the first thing that popped into my mind is when are guys hunting that time of year? Early. Well, I mean, they're if this is happening from 10 to noon, people are getting out around 839 because it's getting daylight at 6 o'clock in the morning, 630. There you go. You know? And that's why those bucks are doing it. They lay up. As soon as they hear the traffic leave the woods at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, the coast is clear to them. They sent check everything. They go check those scrapes. I see the same thing on my bucks out here. When they hear the rigs leave the mountains after 9, 10, 11 o'clock, some of my best hunts on my best deer are between 10 o'clock and 2 Mm o'clock. During during that time of the year you're talking about where they're checking scrapes a little before the breeding really kicks off. Yes. That's an excellent time to kill a big buck right before breeding is midday. I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I think there's a lot of good whitetail hunters out there that would agree to with that timing playing off of when the hunters are coming and going, those deer learn that they, yeah. they, they listen to every, they listen to all the noise. They, they scent check everything. They know when the coast is clear. Yep. It's made me think, rethink like how to hunt that time frame Cause it just, it, it doesn't happen just one year. It happens just about every year. You know, I'd be in that, I'd be in that, I'd be on that scrape set up off the edge of that wind with that inside corner is a great setup too yeah i think i need to adjust my stand a little bit it is on the field edge i'm not but it's in such a good oak tree that there's in the cover stays all the time but like i said where i'm hunting deer can see me walking into my stand because i don't i mean it's all ag with little woodlots they can see me walking into my stand for two miles away so i need to think outside the box a little bit and maybe adjusting the stand a little bit, maybe a little more into the timber shooting out to the edge and not being on the edge and um, adjusting how I, how I enter the stand, I guess. Yeah. So I would definitely be in the timber there on that inside corner, back in the timber where you can shoot the scrape also set up to where your wind and your entrance and exit. Well, especially your entrance that day, isn't going to blow to the bedding of where those bucks are. Those bucks are going to hold, hold tight until they feel it's safe to move. Right. 
And I would, if it was me, I'd be in there before daylight and I'd just wait them out as long as I had the wind to work because then they're never going to see you come in. Right. Yeah. If you can make the wind work there for where those bucks are hiding out or the direction they're going to come from, if you can miss their nose and get in there, to me, that's just a matter of putting a few hours in, getting in in the dark because they'll see you. I'd be in there and set up before daylight and I'd just wait them out. I mean, it's worth a, it's worth a five hour sit. If you kill a, you know, a trophy buck for your Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, cool. We're at a little over an hour right now. I want to transition to some listener questions here. Cause, um, I got a few and I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on them, but let's kind of get into some of these. I'm going to ruin some of these names, their Instagram names. So I apologize <laughs> up front, everybody, but the first question is from Jay Elliott Outdoors, and he says, are all licking branches the same tree type? Does tree type change depending on uh, on scrape type, if that makes sense? Yeah, all licking branches are not the same tree species. Uh, I talk about this a lot in other podcasts, boot camps that I teach you individually as a hunter have to go into your neck of the woods and you've got to get some boots on the ground and break down country and see scrapes and vegetation species that your deer prefer. Find the vegetation, the species of vegetation, tree, brush, whatever, that they really prefer in that area and go with that. That's what I do. Okay. And you'll even mismatch. Like if you have, if they love pin oaks, but you're in an area where it's like a cedar tree, you'll put a pin oak on a cedar tree. Is that right? Yeah. You can, if you, if you ever look at my YouTube, you'll see that I'll have a, I'll have like an ocean spray licking branch strapped to a black pine tree. Okay. I'm giving the deer the ocean spray because that's what they like in that drainage. Mm-hmm. So yes, to answer your question, yes. Okay, good answer there. I like that. So next one is from, his name is Swamp Buck. Uh, he says, great podcast. Are the scrapes he makes limited to the fall or all year for picks? And I think we kind of answered that yeah. in this podcast. So hopefully Swamp Buck listens to this. My scrapes are not ever limited. They work year-round. I build them year-round because it's again. I'm going to pound this into the into the listener's head. It's a community-based hub. It is their social media site to get. It's it's their place to identify everybody that's alive and surviving. So no, it's not fall only. Where fall only comes into play, and it's only because of necessity. If I have to move on a big deer to get closer to him, where he'll move in the daylight during the fall based on where he's bedded and using an area to bed in. Then I will move, put a community scrape on the ground on purpose to blow all that scent into his nose daily to elicit a daylight response from him. But my hub scrapes work year round for me. Sometimes I have to play off of those a little bit and move on a, a smart old buck that maybe figures me out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. To go a little further from that, just real quick, if you have a hub scrape 
and you have a buck showing up, maybe he's not in daylight. Maybe it's just more nocturnal for whatever reason. Are yep. you are you starting to cast a net around that? And yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's what I was I wondering. Move on him. I'm very aggressive. I move right at the direction that I that I get him coming in on camera or whatever. But I'll tell you what, it's pretty easy to figure out the direction he's coming if you break down the wind and the thermal in the area. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I will break down the wind and thermal and how it works at that hub scrape. And then I'll move at that deer based on the wind that works for him. And I know that is what he's doing because he has to, because that's how he comes in. And I know that's how he has to survive and live is he has to use that wind and thermal daily combo. I'll move on him. And, and it's, that's one of the, my favorite things to do is I'll have a hub scrape that's working good. But if a big deer is a little too far away, I've talked about this before. He's a little too far away to get there in the daylight, or maybe he's not daylighting enough for me. That's when I move in his direction. And it might be a quarter mile. It might be a half mile. I might even move almost a mile at him based on elevation and terrain and where I think his bedding zone is. And boom, I'll pick him up daylight. See, that's a basic. Yeah. I'm basically intercepting him really close to his hideout, his bedding zone. And he's still coming down to the hub scrape. That's his destination destination. But I'm intercepting him along the way. Yep. That's awesome. I love that. All right. I just had to ask that because it came in my head. So the next one, DK Wellman 27 trail cam positioning compared to the scrape. I think he's asking like, what's your trail cam positioning to the scrape? A lot of guys ask me that because they'll see some of my videos and sometimes I'll have a camera low and back. Sometimes I'll have them real high. For the listener, I'm basing that on the behavior of my deer at that spot. Okay. My my overall, it, like if you said, Troy, if you could only go with one trail cam positioning for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be high. It would be back off the scrape. And at a view to where I can really pick up a wide angle of his travel. Okay. And I'm always going to run video and picture on any potential stud buck. So they always get two cameras if it's a potential stud or even a like a three and a half year old that's that three and a half year old I picked up a couple of weeks ago that's going to be a stud. I'll run two cameras on him from three and a half, four and a half up to five and a half so that I can get two years of intel on him now. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I want to know everything I can about that deer and how he uses that spot to address that scrape. Okay. So high, high is my number one favorite setup. I use the spy high system. Google it. It's awesome. Spy high mounting. And those guys aren't paying me anything to say this. I hope they listen to this podcast because this, <laughs> these guys, they have a great little camera mounting system with a telescopic pole, which is great for public land too, because guys aren't stealing my cameras and bears aren't climbing up and swatting them very easy. Yep. Okay. So high is my favorite. I also like to capture killer video. I'll just be honest. So if I get into a spot where my bucks aren't bothered by a camera and I'll usually test that with the photo camera first, the one that's just on pictures. Yep. A lot of times I'll place a camera low and back and shooting upwards through a deer at a scrape 
just to get sick video. And I've noticed that I've, I've been fortunate in some spots that I don't have, if I don't have a lot of bears, if I have a lot of bears, I got to go high or they'll just eat my cameras. Mm -hmm. But every now and then I'll get in an area that doesn't have a ton of bears in it. And with that low angled back quite a ways, my cameras usually are quite a ways off the scrape, by the way. Um, I do pretty good with that too. And I do that a lot when I'm on a slope and I want to get it to go up the mountain. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that I get more view. Cause if you're high on a steep mountain and you're angled down, you don't get a lot of, of coverage. Yeah. So if you see one of my cameras, that's low, it might be hard to tell in the video, but it's actually kind of steep beyond it. Okay. I got you. If that answers it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think so. Uh, the next one from T Pritch 30 has the targeting a specific buck mentally ruined the real excitement and love for it all. Good question. Absolutely not. It's the, it's the reason why I love whitetail hunting. These guys that say targeting a specific buck, it wears you out. It ruins you, man. That's not my mental makeup. That's not who I am. Um, Maybe I'm cut from a different cloth when it comes to some of these deer, but I would rather target a specific buck and him beat me and teach me than I do not settle. I will not kill a deer just to kill a deer so I can get a picture taken. I mm-hmm. won't do it. I respect whitetails. Those old bucks, man, I, I, I just, that's who I am. I will let deer after deer walk. I love targeting the specific ones because that's what gets me the most excited about hunting whitetails is one-on-one, mono-a-mono, me versus you. If you beat me, you beat me. You're going to teach me a ton if you beat me, and I'm going to come back after you again. And if that buck disappears, gets killed by somebody else, a wolf kills it, whatever, I always have plan B, C, D, and E ready to go. And it's always a target. I rarely kill a trespasser. Rarely. But you will. I love it. <laughs> if oh, you have I, to. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. To be clear on that, target a specific buck, but if a, I'm all about age. Yep. Number one, stud comes through. I can see the age. I can see he's an old warrior. I can see he's been around at least five years. He just looks it and that clicks instantly when you see these deer come. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I'm not passing up a great trespasser either. But if I go through my last 20 whitetails and this is straight up 19 of them out of the last 20 and I counted this up the other day were targets. Damn. And I got sheds I'm doing a shed thing for whitetail addictions where we're doing this little shed story thing that's really cool. You guys should check it out. Whitetail Addictions TV, YouTube. Us guys are on the Whitetail Addictions team are going through like five or six of our bucks that we've killed that we have sheds to. And I was talking to Justin Hollinsworth the other day, and I think I told Justin, I think I have 13 or 14 now that I have sheds to. So for me to answer that question about a target buck, that even means more to me because I have such a history with that deer. Right. It's what, it's what I, if I couldn't hunt target bucks and that said, you can no longer kill a target or go out and just individual or single one out. I, I would, I would not be excited as I am about whitetails. That's my favorite part is yep. into solo hunting a buck. 
targeting him, individual hunting that deer. Yeah, that's really cool though. That I mean, and it's like you said, it's you know, you might be cut from a different cloth. Like there's it's difficult. I've killed a few bucks that I've had uh like this year in Michigan I killed a great buck that I had history with last year. You know, but I'm also an opportunist opportunist to where if another one of my shooters comes in, I'm not going to say no to that. Like I'm a bird in the hand kind of guy, but oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I definitely, I definitely want to kill that. Yeah. I like having two options at every, every area, two mm-hmm. or three. Yeah. Is that possible? Not always. Right. Uh, but no, it's, it's something that this, it's probably isn't for everybody. And I understand that, but it's sure what wakes, what gets me fired up. I it's on my mind every day of my life. Yeah. Always. No, that's yeah, very cool. Do. Let's uh, go to the next one here. Tyrell Roy says, does heavy snowfall affect scrape activity? I found that my bucks, and I have video of it, and I watch them do it. A foot of snow or less doesn't even slow them down if they want to pile out a scrape and check it. They'll always walk through and scent check the licking branch anyway. Even if they're... 10 yards downwind of it. They're still coming through the area. That's the key is getting them to frequent shootable uh, spots at your scrape. Um, but I have, like I said, I, I've got some video, I think, on my YouTube page where I put a buck fever synthetic bottle on the ground. And as the snow starts to stack up around it, if you watch the video close, you'll see the bottles almost covered in snow. And I got a buck that I killed coming in and just digging that, digging that out, digging it out, digging it out. As soon as I get 18 inches of snow, my whitetail scraping, hunting uh, slows down because my deer late season start to migrate downhill when they get about a foot and a half, two feet of snow. They start moving. So then I got to move. Yeah. If I get too much snow early, sometimes I have to drop an elevation and hunt them at a lower elevation, the same deer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, Howie underscore H2 underscore Miller says, do you like morning or evenings better? Depends on what time of the year, what phase of the season I'm in. When I say phase, summer phase, because I get to start hunting August 30th. Yep. I guess let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. If you had a choice to hunt mornings or evenings, doesn't matter. Like that's only like, what would you rather hunt? To kill a specific buck? Yep. To kill a big mature buck if I only could choose one or the other? Yep. Gosh, that's tough. That's why I wanted to ask that. <laughs> um, if I could only do it the rest of my life, I was going to kill big deer. Let me hunt from daylight till 2 o'clock. Okay. So you're morning. And I love the evenings too, but if I had to pick, I love mornings. Yeah. I love the majestic feel of a morning. Like... You're there, the woods is coming alive, but I love killing deer in the evening for some reason. And I like, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, you know, I've, since 2009, all my significant bucks, I've kept records of the day I killed them, where I killed them, what time I killed them, what the wind was, what the pressure was, you know, what stand, what location, like, I mean, I've done all the homework on this in the moon phase, everything, just to see if there's a trend in mm-hmm. any of it and I'd have, to go, I'd have to go back and look but i've killed like 13 bucks in the evening and like three in the morning like it's just yep. 
you know, it's just, I love the feel of the morning, but I just have better success in the evening. I think one reason I chose the mornings over the evenings is I hunt very close to bedding. Yep. Okay. So, so outside of the rut, which is 80, 75, 80% of my season, I'm hunting an individual buck close to his bedding zone and I can catch him before day, before I can catch him after legal shooting light in the morning, ascending usually an elevation back to his bedding zone. And I can sneak in the back door in the mornings and intercept him on his way back to a safe area. Okay. And that's what I love about mornings is I can get in there, be set up, and he's not expecting anything close to his bedding in the morning. Yep. He's moseying through. Like I've already, I've been here. I'm, I've been safe. And then you just slip one right through his chest. He, he feels safe when he gets close to that bed. When he's almost there, he's got a sense of security. Mm-hmm. And if you slide in there back door and meaning back dooring him in the morning, meaning I'm coming in the back door, I'm setting up on his entry area towards his bed and I'm intercepting him. I'm intercepting him, uh, before he goes to bed down, he's been out all night. He's been feeding, whatever. He feels pretty safe there in the daylight. Yep. And it's always the first hour or two of the daylight. And then once the rut comes, I like that mid, like we talked about. I like that mid morning stuff after the, a lot of hunters leave the mountains. Sure. Okay. Alrighty. Uh, next one, Sam underscore yellow river floors outdoors. Maybe, um, <laughs> it's a long one. <laughs> How do you make sure they're not daylight or I'm let me read this. How do you make sure they're daylight scrapes, not middle of the night scrapes? Well, that's pretty easy. I run cameras on them. Okay. And as as my old college football coach used to say, film never lies ever. Never. Ball don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, film never lies and our coaches would tell us that boys Sit down. Film doesn't lie. So yeah, whatever kind of ga- whatever kind of game you think you had, here's the footage to watch it. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm monitoring. Uh, I'm not going in and blind on a scrape. I do have video and picture evidence of what's moving in the daylight. So that helps. I think that answers the question. I think so too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If if it's a nighttime scrape, guess what, listeners? I don't bother with it. I don't even. If it's too far away for a buck to feel comfortable in the daylight or in a in a spot that a buck doesn't want to be there except for a night. You think I'm ever going to hunt there? No. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, the next one, Luke Geffers, where would be the best places to find a community scrape? You got to look for a few things. You, you need good security cover. You need, terrain that funnels deer kind of naturally without them even knowing it into a general location. Um, just to keep this very general, but narrow it down. So good cover funneling terrain. I like where mature buck bedding zones overlap. The area kind of overlaps with known established doe family group living areas, if you will where they kind of, if you drew circles on the map, those circles would overlap a little bit. Okay. Community, community scrapes will a lot of times show up there in those areas. And that's real easy to do on your maps, mm-hmm. you know, kind of based on your evidence of what you find when you're out in the woods or 
whatever you have for hunt, huntable ground. Yep. Okay. And in this country, my community scrapes could be on a steep side hill. They could be on a bench. They could be in a in a faint saddle that nobody really sees. And a lot of times it's just where ridges converge, you know, where I get a network of ridges that kind of all come together and maybe they'll spill out onto a little bench. Kind of the epicenter of like a terrain feature maybe, or it's that terrain, natural terrain driven. And when I say terrain driven, they use those pathways because of the way the wind, we don't talk about the wind enough. They use those pathways daily to go to and from biological needs based on how the wind and thermals work in that area because they're moving with a, you know, a safe, they, they're moving with a safe wind and thermal direction that keeps them alive. Mm-hmm. So when I go in to break down an area, I break the wind down on a map before I even go into it, always. Then I pick my spots based on terrain and habitat overlay and then I'll dive into it with boots and break it all down. And I'll usually find those community scrapes or find just a great place to build one based on all the travel sign. That definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Next one, Lance Brown photography. Um, number of scrapes in an area he's hunting one or more than one at a stand location. He's asking. Yeah, I think what he's asking me is, you know, Troy, do you just build one only? Yeah, I think so at too. At a stand location. Sometimes, and again, I go with what the deer tell me in that neck, that area. And my, for your listeners, my area is huge. It's different drainages for hundreds of miles in some places. So what the deer tell me, like I have a spot that for whatever reason, the community scrapes in this one drainage, there'll be clusters two or three of them where the deer just go completely berserk over a big community scrape. So they'll build other ones right around it. Sometimes if I feel like it, I'll build a cluster two or three just to really blow it up. I'll build rubs. I'll just make it look like a darn war zone that I actually see made by the deer themselves in other parts of the area. Sometimes if I feel like, I just need a big single that's very evident, visual, uh, easy to get the scent out where I'm placing it. I'll just build one. And I'll, a lot of times it'll be the size of a car hood, you know, if I go one big one. Not always that big, you know, sometimes half the size of a car hood. But I always make them very easy to visualize scent. Uh, I just want them to walk into the area and see rubs, see the scrape, see the licking branches see everything that they should see and that they want to see to attract them to it. Yep. Okay. Um, so I, so I mix it up. That makes sense. I mix it up. Sometimes I do a cluster. A lot of times though, it's just a big single. Okay. Um, last one here. I'm going to butcher this guy's name and I'm so sorry, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. His name is, <laughs> his name is Dylan, uh, Breimeyer. I'm going to go with that. Um, okay. he says when chasing your hit list bucks, how do you select who to go after? Do you focus on the most killable ones or do you pick the biggest, baddest one you find and then grind it out? Um, usually that buck's got to really mean something to me. So it doesn't, it doesn't always mean the one with the biggest, highest scoring rack. 
but a lot of times it is because that's a deer that has been able to evade everybody else. Uh, most killable, a lot of times, if I have one that's the most killable, but say he's like number three or four on my personal intrigue, I'll save him as an ace in the hole. I'll save him as like, yeah, I can kill this deer, but I want to go, I want to go get after this deer instead until that deer is unkillable or I kill him. So a lot of times you. I'll put one, I'll put one in my hip pocket, one or two in my hip pocket for, uh, if maybe the stud I'm after something happens to him or he just out, you know, he outmaneuvers me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Man, to have options like that, to be able to put one in your hip pocket, I gosh, that's great. <laughs> it, it, it's it, it you kind of need to, yeah, because if you put all your eggs in one basket, you're going to be disappointed a lot. And I think that's where guys, I think it was a good question earlier about targeting one specific buck. You know, does it wreck you a little bit? Mm-hmm. I think that's where it can wreck a guy. If all you have is one specific buck to hunt, kind of sucks if that doesn't work out. I'd agree you, with you on that. Yeah. You know, when you have options, Hey, you know, when you, I mean, obviously I always want to kill my number one target. That's, I put the most amount of time in, but sometimes they're not killable. Sometimes they move on you and you got to go do a whole bunch of work to try to find him again. And that's kind of the way my seasons go. A lot of times is I know that I got to have at least two or three studs to hunt to be in the game because I got predators bumping my studs. Mm-hmm. I got predators that sometimes if I like, I have a pack of wolves moving on me like five years ago on a great buck. I never saw that buck again, ever. He just disappeared. I was literally walking into my tree stand and had eight sets of wolf tracks, half a mile or no quarter mile from my stand. Never saw that deer again. That happens. That's the reality of my hunting. That's why, that's why I got to be able to bounce to a different animal. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, like I said it in the first podcast we did, you're hunting deer that are constantly getting hunting, hunted every day of the, the year. They're getting hunted right now. Yeah. Hard. And mm-hmm. it's still blizzarding here. So they're getting, they're getting pounded today by wolves and lions. I guarantee it. Yeah. Well, man, I I appreciate you doing this again. Part two, this is this is a success to me. This is information that's it's crazy. Not not you're to me. You're a fraction of guys out there that are doing things on this level with scrapes. Um, it's I, I feel blessed that I've been a, that I could talk to you and ask you these questions. And now I feel like you're a friend, and I can text you or call you, and and you wouldn't be pissed at me for asking you a question. <laughs> Not at all. Anytime. No, I appreciate it, Aaron. Yeah, we're going to definitely do it again. We, You know, coming in, I maybe we'll do one coming into September, October time frame, getting ready for season. I'd like to do another one. Um, not so much on scrapes, but just as far as like your setup, um, you know, maybe gear related to, you know, what your what your gear is and, and how you how you know that you're going to be bulletproof with the clothes you wear down to the equipment you use when you're in the mountains hunting. So Yeah, that's a, that sounds great. I, I get hammered pretty hard on the scrapes because I understand why. That's cool. I love it. Yep. But, yeah, there's so much more that I, that I don't get asked or talked about a lot of times when it comes to the other aspects of making this thing 
successful for decades. For sure. And and I appreciate that because I think there's a lot of other rabbit holes to dive into that are part of the overall just being being successful as a whitetail hunter, period. That's what I want to dive into. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I hopefully hopefully today the listeners hopefully we I was able to answer their questions thoroughly enough to where they can get something from it. I hope that worked out. Yeah, definitely. I think so too. Well, Troy, thank you very much again, man, for doing this and uh, it's greatly appreciated. Thanks for having me, man. And there it is. Thank you, Troy Pottinger, for coming on and talking again, man. I greatly appreciate that. Like I said, guys, mind is blown. Um, I love talking to Troy. He's He's got a lot of information and the guy knows what the hell he's doing. So thank you guys very much for all the support and all the downloads. Remember, go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and leave a written review. And also, if you listen on Spotify, you can rate there as well. Go to Spotify and leave a five-star rating. Thank you, guys.